The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning, boys. Great to have you all here. So excited to be able to worship God together. So excited to be able to look in God's Word together. And just out of curiosity, how many of you think Iowa will be in the top four playoffs? Okay. Do you really, how many of you really don't give a rip? No. You know, the fact of the matter is Google says that of, of all the searches, most of the searches have to do is people, especially Americans, wanting to predict the future. Whether it be to predict the future regarding politics, who's going to be the next president, whether it's going to be who's going to, what team is going to win or who's going to be on top. Uh, there are so many searches given toward this. Uh, a lot of searches uh, dealing with the future, the financial stability of the United States. Will interest rates go up? Will they go down? Will the stock market be up or down a year from now so they can do puts or calls, et cetera? So there's a lot of interest on the future. I'm not saying interest in the future is bad. About a third of the Bible deals with the future, uh, what the future will be like to, in order to give us a hope. The problem is this. James is going to identify a major problem in our lives, and that can be us looking at the future through the eyes of arrogance. When we arrogantly assume that God isn't involved in the process, we misuse our obsession with the future. Matter of fact, the word arrogance, the etymological use of it is to ask or to claim for oneself. I want to know the future so that it can benefit myself. So James, immediately in this section, gives us some warnings. He's going to give us some warnings. He's going to give us some principles. And then he's going to illustrate the principles. Now, the big numbers in the Bible, you have, a, you have a book and then you have big numbers and you have little numbers. The big numbers are the chapter divisions. I wouldn't have put the big number five where whoever, this guy on horseback, put it. I'd have gone after verse six and then I would have put it there. But it's an illustration of what happens at the end of chapter four. So how should we as Christians view the future? What are some of the major mistakes we make in viewing the future. That's what James deals with. So the first mistake he's going to say for us as believers is to plan without God. That's arrogance. In other words, that's asking or claiming elements of the future for myself. So what he does, he pops up this illustration. One guy has an MBA from the University of Jerusalem. The other guy is a CEO from a Fortune 500 company in Tel Aviv. And uh, we get to drop in on their board conversation, and it goes like this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and we're going to make a profit. Well, you think, well, what's wrong with that? Here are a couple of business entrepreneurs. They've just read the popular book, Seven Behaviors of Millionaire Entrepreneurs, and they're so anxious after reading the book to take some of those principles and apply them and put them into practice. Well, what James is telling us is that the first common mistake that we make is planning for the future, but arrogantly forgetting to include God. And that's what we find in this passage. There's not a single mention of God. They knew what they wanted. They knew how to get there, but they left God out. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying it's wrong to plan. 
Matter of fact, you get to the epistles and you'll see over and over and over the apostle Paul's plans. I plan to go to Jerusalem. I plan to go. Same with Jesus. We see the plans that Jesus had. So it's not wrong to plan. What's wrong is arrogantly leaving God out of the plans. No man would consider building a house without first finding out how much it's going to cost. That's in the Gospels. So in other words, you have to plan for that. If you don't plan, you're a fool, Proverbs says. So James isn't talking about planning. He's talking about arrogant presumption. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this. Since I've spent over 50 years of my life writing on the history of the Russian Revolution, in the process I've collected hundreds of personal testimonies I've read hundreds of books and contributed eight volumes of my own. If I were to ask, or, or if asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million Russians, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat the phrase, men have forgotten God. That's the issue. Men have forgotten God. That is what James is talking about here. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think on one hand that, well, I'm attending church today. Oh, I love God with all of my heart. There's no doubt about it. But then on the other hand, if we go forward planning our business, planning our career, planning our education, raising our family, without God, we're no more than practical atheists. So James is saying, don't be so arrogant. Don't be so, so, so self-sufficient. Don't be so prideful as to think you can go forward in life without purposefully following God. So the solution is this. Prioritize God in your goal setting. Let the Lord be the Lord of your life. So James says in verse 15, instead what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. See, to plan without God is arrogant presumption. Now, when James uses the term, if the Lord wills, on the one hand, there are three possibilities to that phrase. One possibility would just be by making reference to it. In other words, if the Lord wills, it, it just becomes a cliche. It's a cliche, and then you just do what you want to do anyway. When I pastored a, a church in Texas, started a church in Texas, it was a, right after getting out of seminary. Six couples, we started a church. And for a couple of the guys there, it was a cliche. If the Lord wills, blah, blah, blah. If the Lord wills, blah, blah, blah. And it, it became that cliche. So you can make reference to it, or you can make deference to it. In other words, if the Lord wills, I will accept it. Whatever God wants, I'm just going to accept. I don't think that's what James is talking. What James is talking about is making preference to it. More than anything in my life, I desire, I want God's will. God, help me to do what you're calling me to do. Help me to do uh, what you are blessing me and equipping me to do. Uh, God, you're doing an awful lot of fantastic things in this world, and I want to be part of it. I want to be involved. God, I want your plans for my life 
because your plans for my life will be what success is. Whatever it is, however it's defined, it is what will give me joy in life. More than anything in my life, God, I want your will. So to plan without God is presumptuous. So desire to follow God's will, give a preference toward it at all costs. Second mistake, presuming about tomorrow. In other words, taking life for granted. Verse 14. Yet you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life? You are a atmos, a mist, that's going to appear for a little time and then will vanish. And then verse 16. As it is, you boast, and in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. James gives us a couple of reasons why we shouldn't presume upon the future. First of all, he says, look, life is unpredictable. You don't know. You don't know. None of us know that. Who would have guessed September 11th? Our nation has radically been changed since September 11th. Who would have guessed a war? Who would have guessed cancer? Who would have guessed a death? Who would have guessed any of that? Who would have guessed an, an economic collapse? Who would have guessed you would have lost your job? Who would have guessed a car crash? Life is unpredictable. Secondly, life is so brief. You are a, an atmos, is the Greek word. We get our word atmosphere. You're, you're just a mist. Don't presume, on, don't be so arrogant as to think you'll have tomorrow. That's why all the words that are used to describe the length of your life, multiple times throughout the Bible, the words that are used to describe your life are words like leaf, grass, vapor, mist, cloud, shadow. All those are words used to describe your life. In other words, you're just one heartbeat away from eternity. And virtually no time at all, you'll go from high chair to wheelchair. You'll go from diapers to decay. So the thrust is, and we looked at this when we were in Proverbs and Psalms in Parkview U, Psalm 90. So the response is Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. Don't be so arrogant. Don't be so prideful as to think you'll have tomorrow or the next day or the next year or the year after. Teach us to number our days. Yet in Isaiah 56 verse 12, there were some who said, come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day. Great beyond measure. How arrogant, how prideful to think that tomorrow is going to be like today. Don't presume about tomorrow. Don't plan without God. Don't presume about tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day is going to bring. So the solution is you live every day by faith. If God in his grace and mercy gives you another day, you live it for him by faith and don't, let, don't leave him out. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So 
listen, it is wise. It, it's wise. It's smart to plan for the future. The, the Bible gives lots of examples about that. It's not like you don't plan. The Apostle Paul is filled with plans. I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. Jesus, same thing. It's fine to do that, but you can only live now. You can only live today because life is what happens while you're planning something else. So enjoy today. Make the best use of today. Ask God by faith, what does he want you to do today? Spencer Johnson said, the perfect present is the perfect present. Right now, that's all you have to give to this world. Right now, not next hour, not next month. Right now, so use it. So don't make the mistake of planning without God or presuming about tomorrow. Instead, you include God. You prioritize God. Don't be like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, his warning. Man without God. No, you and you live one day at a time by faith. Thirdly, third mistake, and that is putting off doing good. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do yet fails to do it, for him it is sin. Maybe we could use the word procrastination. Procrastination is my sin. It causes me only sorrow. I know I ought to change my ways. In fact, I will tomorrow. It's procrastination. You know, the Bible talks about sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, doing those things you know God doesn't want you to do. Sins of omission is there are great things God has for you to do. Sins of omission is manana, later, tomorrow, never. So Christianity is far more than just avoiding evil. Sins of commission. It's also sins of omission not doing today what God wants you to do. Procrastination is a trap. So what's the solution? Do God's will now. Today, now. Proverbs 3.27 says, don't withhold good from those to whom it's due when it is in your power to do it. You don't say to your neighbor, go, come again tomorrow, and I'll give it to you when you have it with you. So do it now. Look, there are three things you can do with your, with your uh, resources, with your time, with your talent, with your treasure. Three things you can do. You can either spend it, waste it, or invest it. What James is saying is invest it and do it today. Do it now. Invest your life in something that's going to outlast your life. That's only two things, the Word of God and people. Those are the only things that will outlast life. The Word of God and people. As Jim Elliott said, one, one of the greatest privileges we had was to have Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife, in our home. I, I can still picture her sitting down at our front windows, rocking little Elizabeth, you know, talking to Cheryl about being a mom and talking to me about ministry. And Jim Elliott is one who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot live, lose. You invest your life and the things that will outlast your life. You know, I think as a Christian nation and I think as contemporary Christians, I want you to listen. Now, 
because we'll all be able to identify. I think we are obsessed as a people with the duration of life rather than the donation of life. And when we get obsessed with the duration, think how much of your life is spent, consumed in the duration of life. Well, I got a jog. I got to work out. I've got to buy vitamins here and vitamins there. And, and I've got to eat better and, and do all this stuff to increase the duration of life. But what we forget is it's not so much the duration of life, it's the donation of life. It's what you're doing with it. Now, believe me, you know, the, even the Bible says there's some profit to that. I'm not saying it's wrong to work out, it's wrong to eat healthy, it's wrong to take vitamins, it's wrong to go to the doctor. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying we get obsessed with that and we forget the most important thing, which is the donation of life. So make your life count, James says. And don't put it off. Do it today. Do it now. It was on April 3rd, 1968. It was the night before his assassination. Martin Luther King gave one of his most famous sermons. Actually, it was his final sermon final speech he ever gave at the Mason Temple in Memphis, his last public words ever spoken. At the very conclusion, it's, it's recorded, you can listen to it. At the conclusion of his speech, he said this, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. By the way, he was 39 years old when he said this. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. Listen. I just want God's will. He has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not be there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Last recorded words of Martin Luther King. So what about you? Manana? Well, I've been thinking about witnessing to my neighbor. I've been thinking about getting involved in a community group. I've been thinking about maybe bringing some food over to a friend in need. I've been thinking about helping out here, helping out there. I've been thinking about maybe giving a Thanksgiving offering or giving, giving to the, the, the um, church, to the general fund of the church. I've been thinking about that stuff. You know, I was so moved by, by Ying Kai last Sunday. I didn't even go Sunday night. I just heard the sermon on Sunday morning. I've witnessed to four people since, <laughs> since last Sunday morning. Um, I want God's will now, Martin Luther King said. The point is, do it now. You have no idea how long your life will last. 
We're going to have communion at the very end. And the appeal for communion is, you've got to remember what I went to the cross for. It should make a difference in your life. And I would cry out to you, if you have sat here week after week after week and have never made the commitment to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I, I cry to you, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6-2, right now God is ready to welcome you. Today he is ready to save you. Don't put it off. You're a leaf, you're a piece of grass, you're a vapor, you're a cloud, you're an atmos. You don't know if you have tomorrow. And so now James wants to illustrate it. Our presumption, our arrogance of trying to live God, live life without God. And he uses the area of finance. So just like he's used the area of the tongue before, because it reveals the heart, now he uses an illustration of our finances, because it just illustrates where our heart is. So what I want you to do, I want you to listen as I read it. Now, you've got to listen carefully. Listen to the words. You can either look at, look at it up here on the screen, or I want you to shut your eyes. Either one, let me read the text. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, you can open your eyes if you shut them. Or you can look back at me. Now, I want you to be real, real honest. When you read those words or listened to me read those words, did you say to yourself that that text doesn't apply to me because I'm not wealthy? Did you say that to yourself? And did you have the arrogance and prideful thought of, I'm glad so-and-so's hearing it because I don't need to hear this. If so, my appeal to you is to go right back to the end of chapter 4 and say, how dare you be so arrogant? How dare you be so filled with pride that you've just violated the very thing he's talked about? So let's pray together. Lord, it is so easy easy to point our fingers at other people and away from our own hearts. So most Holy Father, sweet Lord Jesus, precious Holy Spirit, speak to us. Change our lives for your glory that we would use all of our resources, our, the time and talent and treasure that you've entrusted to us to glorify your name by loving you and loving others and enhancing your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully now you're bearing the weight and you're not just, oh, I hope somebody else hears it. What do we want to avoid with the use of accumulated wealth? And that's what James, this is how James unpacks it. And the first issue is the accumulation of wealth. 
And James' appeal here is don't hoard it. So he says, come now, you rich, weep, howl for the miseries that's coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have, there's the word, hoarded treasure in your last days. And here, I mean, he could have used an illustration of the way you use your time. He could have used an illustration about the way you use your gifts. Here he uses money because it's so near and dear to all of us. Just like our tongue reflects our hearts, so money reflects our hearts as well. So basically what he's saying is, with the accumulation of those resources God has given to you, don't hoard it. God wants his resources, time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, in circulation. Not piled up somewhere. He wants it in circulation. Now, what James is not saying is there's no room for saving. That's, that's just not true because there are way too many illustrations throughout the Bible where there are appropriate times to save. We have lots of illustrations. You're, you're to save in order to do certain things. You, you save up, then there might be a collection to help people in need. Or you save up, and you're to be a blessing to your children's children. You're to, so there are a lot of appropriate reasons to save. So he's not talking about what I would call biblical saving. What he is talking about is hoarding. Very different. Hoarding is an end in itself where accumulation is the goal. Accumulation should never be the goal. So do you see the huge difference between biblical saving and hoarding? Big difference between the two. And he is saying your resources, whether it be time, your talent, your treasure, whatever it is, should be put into circulation and not hoarded. Second issue is the appropriation of wealth. And in the appropriation of wealth, he is saying quite simply, don't steal it. <laughs> so he's more than interested in what we have. It's also, he's also interested in how we get it. So he's saying, with your money, don't rip people off and be sure if you are indebted to somebody, you be sure and pay your debts. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So in the accumulation of wealth, don't hoard it. In the appropriation of wealth, don't steal it. Do you see how it all goes back to arrogant presumption? All of it goes back to arrogant presumption that, you know, God is pie in the sky, but he doesn't really make a difference in my life. And then the accumulation or the um, allocation of wealth, he's saying, look, don't waste it. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, James just blasts these guys for, for arrogantly believing that it's theirs. You know, we are God's children. He's given us resources. He's given us time. He's given us talent. He's given us treasure. But it's his to use. It's not ours. It's his treasure. So James is just saying, don't be so arrogant. Don't be so prideful to think that it's yours to spend. You know, take every penny and just spend it on yourself. Don't waste it. You know, I'm convinced in the United States we have a problem and we teach our kids the same problem. It goes sort of like this. You get married, it's... It, 
let's just call it the 11th commandment, the assumed 11th commandment. If thou makest more money, adjust thy standard of living, that you might continue to live on the edge of existence rather than being a blessing to God and a blessing to others. So I'm going to just constantly adjust standard of living so that I can live on the edge, so that I can constantly say I don't have enough money to blank. I don't have enough money to because I'm constantly adjusting that standard of living upward. So you got a, a guy and a gal, they fall in love, they get married, and they are poor as church mice. They rent a one-bedroom apartment. I'm thinking back at our, when we, when we got married, we lived, we lived in a beautician shack. It was a, a deserted beautician. I mean, that place where we live wasn't more than two, two of these platforms. And our, our stove was a hot plate. <laughs> and we, Cheryl and I would go out, we'd get milk, we'd get powdered milk. Uh, it was crazy. But, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, then all of a sudden you have a baby and, you know, you're happy. Boy, you're just as happy as little love doves. And then, you know, you get a, all of a sudden you find a job, get a better job, and you make a little bit more money. And so, boy, now we can move into a one-bedroom apartment, make a little bit more money. Now we can move into a two-bedroom. You, you never have enough money for kids, okay? You never have that. We didn't get that lesson. <laughs> But so you constantly keep adjusting that standard of living higher and higher and higher and higher and it never, ever stops. And you know what? Because you're constantly on the edge of what you can afford. You never, you always have an excuse not to get involved in God's work with God's people or reaching the world for Christ. You never have enough. That's the conundrum. So don't plan. Without God, you prioritize God. Don't presume about tomorrow. You live one day at a time. And just because you can afford something doesn't mean you absolutely have to have it. I'm not saying you shouldn't, that it's wrong to. Believe me, I don't, I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, there are lots of verses in the Bible where it says you enjoy what God has given you. So, yeah, enjoy it and have fun. And I'm not saying don't buy stuff. I'm not, I'm not at all saying that. I'm not saying we should all be monks and stuff. But I am saying leave margins so that you have enough to be a blessing in the lives of other people. That's what I'm saying. Just leave margin to do what God is calling you to do. Application of wealth. Don't abuse it. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. One, one of the most impactful books I ever read was by Richard Foster. It's a book that he wrote a number of years ago, Money, Sex, and Power. And basically what he said was, you know, on the, on the one hand, uh, wealth gives you buying power, but he said the bigger issue is wealth also gives you power. So wealth equals power and authority and influence. So all of a sudden, that power part, not only is wealth addicting, power gets addicting, so that we then, we want the trappings and the externalities of power so that we think, ah, I want the power too, so I need to borrow a little bit more money to have the right car, the right clothes, the right trappings to equate and complement 
the appropriate power that I desire. And it can be a huge, huge trap. And it all stems, again, from arrogance, planning without God, presuming about tomorrow, and putting off doing good. So the consequences, the consequences of this misuse is that this hoarded wealth, verses 2 to 3, will decay and devalue. It'll be or dishonest or wasted or abused wealth, verses 4 to 5, will be judged in eternity. And thirdly, enslavement by debt robs us of opportunities to bless God and to bless others. And then the downside is it steals our joy. (laughs) We just don't have the joy that God wants us to have, too. So what do you do? What do you do with accumulated wealth? It's sort of the opposite. We've already hit it, so I've just summarized it there. It's in your notes. I'm not going to go through it, but just a real quick review. What are the, the right things to do with accumulated wealth? You, you save faithfully for the right reasons. In other words, you save it for stewardship reasons, not, not just security reasons, because Philippians 4, God's going to supply all your needs according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Make it honestly. Spend it wisely. And I reverse these two words accidentally. Our yearning capacity should never exceed our earning capacity. And then give it generously. Use your affluence for good influence. And the bottom line, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, we get to be reminded of this in communion. No better opportunity than communion. You know, a few minutes ago, I read the end, the last few words of Martin Luther King's speech. I was on uh, April 3rd, 1968. After Martin Luther King gave that final speech, uh, he was exhausted. And the people around him mentioned that he seemed unusually tired. So he went back to his motel that night, the Lorraine Motel, Memphis, room 306. And he slept until noon the next day. And then at 6 p.m. that evening at the Lorraine Motel, Martin Luther King was shot to death, April 4th, 1968. Riots broke out a hundred, hundred different cities. At his funeral service, there were a number of pastors who spoke. And one of, the, one of the preachers said this, and this is how I'd like to launch into communion. He said, there's a false rumor going around that our leader is dead. Our leader is not dead. Martin Luther King is not our leader. You can hear it in the tape. There's a pause. And somebody from the audience says, talk it. Our leader is the one who led Moses out of Israel. Our leader is the one who led Daniel into the lion's den. Our leader was the one who accompanied Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. 
Our leader's the one who walked out of the grave on Easter morning. Our leader never sleeps. Our leader never slumbers. Our leader is not dead. That is communion. To remind us, Jesus is not dead. And like Martin Luther King, our response to that is, I want God's will. It's not about duration of life. It's about donation of life. How are we going to respond as we take the elements? If it's just some deal we go through once a month, then communion means nothing to us. But if, if it drives us to the cross, drives us to Jesus Christ, drives us to want to do his will, then and only then has it had its intended work. So let me pray. We'll pass the elements. It's designed for believers in Jesus Christ. And boy, my prayer for you is if you have never put your faith, your trust in Jesus, that this morning is the morning that you do it. Today is the day. It's time to get your hearts right with God. So as the elements are being passed, you use this time to get your hearts right with Jesus Christ. It's a time of recommitment. It's a time of realignment. Let me pray for us all. Father, thank you for this incredible passage. Thank you for the opportunity to, that you are using to remind us never to plan without you, never to presume about tomorrow, not to ever put off doing good like Martin Luther King, we want to do your will today, right now. And Lord, I want to pray that if there's anybody here who's never put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would cry out to you for salvation. You, the very one who went to the cross to die for them, to cleanse them, to forgive them, and to give them a new life and a new hope and a new existence, a new joy. Save them, Lord. And for us, all of us, and, and if, that, if that's what you, just cry out in your heart, Jesus, save me now. And he will hear you, and he will save you. And for us, Lord, we, we sit here humble before your word. Every single one of us need to hear this over and over and over. And I just pray that now as we take the elements, Lord, that we would rise up, O oh, man of God, and that we would be changed, that we would be different, and that this world, starting right here in Iowa City, starting right here at Parkview Church, that we would be different. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.